Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Oh, no! There it goes. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I don't have a cool nickname, but my co-host does. Introduce yourself, sir. I don't know if it's cool, but all right. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm also a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. And this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to be reviewing some new movies. Because that's how we roll. That is, the pre- that is the premise of this show. That's right. We're going to be reviewing the new release, Hamilton. We're going to be reviewing the new release, Metamorphosis. We're going to be reviewing the new release, The Truth. And we're going to be reviewing the really old release, Bugsy Malone, on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where Whitney and I catch up on old films that we either haven't seen or haven't seen since we were very, very small. And, uh, yeah, that's the show. It's actually a pretty light show for us. Yeah, I think last week we reviewed, what, like, nine, 19 films along? We, we reviewed a lot. 87 movies, somewhere around there. We were trying to guess, review a lot, but it's a holiday weekend, yeah. and, um, you know, we were hanging out with our families. Well, and there was one kind of gigantic release that really sort of trampled over everything. Yeah, I think everyone... Which is weird, because, like, normally... In movie release schedules, when, like, there's one big release, yeah, a lot of other movies will try to get out of its way, but they still have to fill theaters. Now it's like, look, we all know you're going to be watching Hamilton, and Hamilton's, like, three hours long. We're it's not going to be releasing two hours, too many. It's two hours and 40 minutes, but... That's uh, a hefty uh, chunk of change, and we know you got Fourth of July and stuff, so there weren't, like, a, a ton of hmm. major new releases even on streaming this week, but we have a few, and let's start with Hamilton. Or, as you're supposed to say, Alexander Hamilton, we are going to review who you, were you any good, or were you as good as you should be, the podcast will not be the same. Uh, Alexander (laughs) Hamilton. So I take it you're a Hamilton fan going back to the release of the show. Uh, well, here's the thing. I didn't see it on Broadway. Okay. Well, um, nobody did. You couldn't get tickets. It was I know. always sold out. Okay. So here's here's the here's the here's the deal with Hamilton. Hamilton is uh, uh, the brainchild of Lin Manuel Miranda, who of uh, Mary Poppins Returns fame. Sure, that's what he's. That's famous. what he's famous. He's for. famous for Hamilton. No, he's famous for Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also he also did uh, In the Heights, which is going to get a new musical uh, next year from um, uh, John M. Chu. Which That's I'm right. very excited about. It was my it was my most anticipated new release of this year, and now it's coming out next year. Everything's I, coming out next year. Ironically, Hamilton was supposed to come out next year, and now it's coming out this year. But Hamilton well, is a musical uh, based on the life of fe- one of the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, you might know him from the ten dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if if you studied American history a little bit lower than just your like a high school level. Mm-hmm. You'll know him as the author of the Federalist Papers. Yep. Uh, he and Madison and Jay, who only wrote a couple, uh, wrote essentially the uh, the advertising for the Constitution. Here's why we need a Constitution. Here's mm-hmm. why all of these rights are worth putting in the Constitution. A very important formative document uh, in America. He also fought in the American Revolution. He was also a lawyer. Uh, he was also involved in... <laughs> And a really epic duel that made for one of the greatest Got Milk commercials ever. Uh, and uh, and on top of everything else, he basically founded the U.S. Treasury. So he's a really significant figure in the history of this country. And he rarely gets talked about, partly because he died at a pretty young age. Uh, and also partly because he was never president, unlike many of the other significant founding fathers. So he tends to just get sort of swept aside by history until Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda thought... 
oh, this guy was really interesting, and he read a really uh, a interesting biography of of uh, Alexander Hamilton written by mm. oh, some guy. I, I couldn't say. Uh, I actually forget. I want to give him proper credit. Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, anyway, the the stage production ended up being a, a rap opera, uh, mm-hmm. which was a really fascinating idea. I mean. Broadway history has been suffused with a very particular type of music. Not that Broadway hasn't been incredibly varied over its uh, over its years, but Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's you know, hip hop doesn't make appearances in big A Broadway musicals a lot, and this was sort of a, a breakthrough in that regard. Uh, you can tell that Lin-Manuel Miranda listened to a lot of like late 90s and early 2000s hip-hop in particular because it has a lot of Eminem influence to, on it. Mm-hmm. has a lot of Shaggy. Uh, I listened to Lin-Manuel Miranda's flow in this uh, filmed version of the stage version of Hamilton, and he's, he's like right in a matrix in between Eminem and Shaggy. Yeah. Well, it's very fast-paced. I also see, feel a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan in him as well. There's a well, lot just, of he's very wordy. He's very, very wordy. Mm. This is one of the things that I love about Lin Manuel Miranda, whose name I somehow can't seem to say today. Mm. Uh, but uh, he's he's very wordy. He's very excellent uh, with cadence and complicated rhyme structures and repeated musical phrasing that eventually comes back in later in unexpected dramatic ways. Hamilton is just musically alone. Mm-hmm. Hamilton is a masterwork. Hamilton is absolutely from top to bottom. It's catchy. It's dramatically powerful. Um, you'll be humming bits of it for days. And the production of Hamilton is this. Uh, it's interesting. It's complicated, but it's not. It's actually in kind of like um, one big stage with a few uh, moving theatrical, uh, you know, settings. There's a, a lazy Susan on the stage, which is pretty common on a lot of stagings these days. Yeah, um, but uh, it's it's actually relatively stark. The majority of the cast wears a sort of revel, uh, American Revolution era undergarments, and all they do when they have to switch scenes is they change their coats from blue mm. to red or some, whatever. Some actors play multiple parts. Uh, Davi Diggs, uh, who I actually knew for I I had not seen Hamilton, mm-hmm. and I knew Davi Diggs from. Uh, like blind spotting, yeah, which is a which really, is... really excellent movie, and he's really excellent in it. And oh wait, he's awesome here too, isn't he? Because yeah. he also plays in this. He plays General Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and he is a scene stealer. Yeah, Diggs yeah. He, is, he is fucking amazing in this play. <laughs> Diggs is amazing in this play. Leslie Autumn Jr. Uh, plays Aaron Burr. He gets a lot of the more emotional songs. Aaron Burr, which they tell you right in the first scene, mm. eventually goes on to kill Alexander Hamilton. Well, and there's a duel. The, all these lyrics about "I'm not gonna miss my shot." <laughs> Get it? Yeah. Yeah. We saw the milk commercial. There's a lot of double speak. Mm. Um, but what we have here is not what some people were expecting would eventually happen with Hamilton, which is some grand sort of cinema, uh, cinematic version where they would actually like recreate period locations and sort of a 1776, the movie which, kind of way, which would have killed it by the way. I actually agree. Yeah. I think actually, I think, um, listen, it's possible. Maybe it could have worked. I'm, I'm not going to say that like it's impossible, but Hamilton isn't constructed that way. Mm. Hamilton is constructed to be a stage play. And recreating it as a stage play with the original cast. They even uh, brought in, uh, I think Jonathan Groff uh, plays King George, and he had already left the production by the time they filmed this. And they filmed this like four years ago. Yeah, this is a 2016 production. Yeah, Uh, but they brought back Jonathan Groff just so they could have the original cast sort of documented for posterity, and I'm so glad they did. And this is the way a lot of Broadway musicals, well, some Broadway musicals are 
can gain a lot of traction. I know that happened with Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. uh, happened with Into the Woods. Happened with Cats. Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of these uh, filmed versions of the stage production were the things that made uh, greater circulation before like a, a celebrated or failed film version came out. Mm -hmm. And some of them uh, were released theatrically in a major way, like in an uh, actual like. Uh, Grand, uh, what was God, why can't I talk today? It's so hot today, it's so hot, it's <laughs> boiling heat my brain, is sapping your brain in California today. A uh, wide sun, release, some of them had wide releases, some of them had very small releases. Some destroyed your Z cells. One of the ones that I grew up with, or grew up with this exaggeration, but I'd seen since I was younger, was Zoot Suit, okay, which is a fantastic movie and a fantastic production. Mm -hmm. It was one of the things that shot Edward James almost to stardom and. Um, that's a film stage play, and much like this version of Hamilton, it's not like the camera is just locked off in the audience, mm. like someone would film their kid's school play. They're putting it right in the production, and I think they do a really great job of capturing the production and its stagey qualities, while also bringing you closer to the actors so you can appreciate the nuance of the performances, and there's some really great performances in here. And, yeah, so yes, it is a filmed version of a stage play. That is also valid. Mm. That is also totally worthwhile, and it is absolutely captivating. The rewatch value on this version of Hamilton is through the roof. I've already rewatched parts of it. I never <laughs> make time to rewatch things. I yeah, love I was, I was the just, music of um, Hamilton. I love the way that he constructed yeah. the story of Hamilton. Um, I, I was really deathly afraid I was going to hate Hamilton. Yeah, because you uh, haven't really been exposed to hardly any Hamilton. No, in fact, uh, it, it's one of those massive... Uh, pop culture phenomenon that I just was never on board with. Not because I was avoiding it. Mm -hmm. I just never bothered to immerse myself. Well, it's, it was such a hit on Broadway mm. that they kept it off of like a touring company for a long time because it was just like the scarcity drove up the ticket price. Yeah. And then when it did tour, and I saw a production in LA, which was very, very good. Um, even that was very, very expensive. Mm. I got my tickets as a gift. It was mm. one of the nicest gifts I've ever had. But um but regardless, this is, you can get the soundtrack, and because there's almost no spoken dialogue in the entire play, the soundtrack is the play. The, but you're not also a la Les Miserables. But you're not really getting the full experience, and it's interesting that this play, which is supposed to illuminate American history, and we'll talk a bit about the criticisms of that, but it's supposed to illuminate American history, it's supposed to make American history more accessible uh, to uh, people who are often left out of American history because the entire cast is, uh, except for King George, is people of color. You you couldn't see it unless you were rich. <laughs> that was the irony of Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that thing kind of sucked. And indeed, uh, in in casting the non-white actors and performers, they're highlighting how like what sort of uh, how oppressed the early Americans were and mm -hmm. what it meant to come out from under the yoke of oppression of George the third. Yeah. Uh, and George the third gets a few numbers talking about how it's not going to work. How dare you leave me? Mm -hmm. I remember there was one funny line he has where, um, Washington steps down as president and he comes out and says, I didn't think you could do that because <laughs> he's king. He's going to be king until he dies. Yeah. Or, or, or goes trade, insane as, as the case was. Yeah. What very weird. Uh, so I, I think it was a good way to highlight a, a certain aspect of American history that often gets overlooked. Uh, you know, you learn about it in a classroom, it just seems like a bunch of stuffy guys in rooms writing letters, which indeed it was. We're mad about taxes and tea. I, I learned that uh, the reason a lot of these sort of letters and essays could be read actually was a technological one. Candle technology mm. advanced to the point where they were making candles out of wax. Previously, they were made out of tallow, and they burned down so quickly 
that once it's dark, well, you stop writing. You go to bed. Yeah. If you can have a candle that burns all night, you can stay up all night writing. Oh, there you go. So that, That's interesting. A, a lot, I think the, the rise of the American ideal... Largely due to with candles. The the casting decisions in Hamilton are noteworthy because it's not a coincidence that the cast is entirely comprised of people of color. It's actually by design. Mm. And I think that serves a variety of functions, but it also does have very distinct drawbacks, which have brought the play distinct criticism, and I think it is entirely valid criticism. Mm. As much as I love and admire this play, the criticisms are warranted, but I don't really see a way out of them and still have, still have the same play. Um so as you mentioned, you know we're looking at uh, Americans as people who are oppressed, who are fighting against oppression. There's a reason the only white person in a play is the one playing King George. Um, and also, uh, it sort of calls attention to, we know in our heads that the Founding Fathers were white people. So when you see them all cast as people of color, it really calls attention to... Damn, it was only white people. What? It's it really was fucked all, yeah, up. Like, yeah. we wouldn't think about it, except now you have to, and it's right there in your mm. face. But the, the downside to this, and it's a huge downside to this, and I think it is a distinct problem with the play, is that basically by having someone like David Diggs play Thomas Jefferson, you're mm. having him play a slave owner who did some really atrocious and terrible things, and you're, although slavery is referenced multiple times throughout the play and it isn't mm. completely ignored it is really shoved off to the side yeah there's one uh, one moment where uh, hamilton and jefferson are in a debate which is staged just a rap battle which i love really great and yeah uh, hamilton brings up the point you know you're not jefferson you are not a champion of enterprise you weren't a wise businessman you kidnapped your labor yeah you have free slave labor and and uh jefferson just sort of poo-poos it up you know yeah everybody has slaves well because they're talking and about they, they kind of address yeah. it and there is a little bit of uh you know deliberate uh, irony being uh, you know shown to the audience in that moment but it's only that one moment it's brief there's a few yeah. mentions of people who are abolitionists uh, but, uh, yeah, Hamilton's actual history, uh, with that subject is not discussed in great detail. There's also a lot of other ugly things about Hamilton's life that they don't really discuss because part of the play's purpose is to sort of celebrate someone who doesn't get as clearly mm -hmm. as Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think, would argue, because he made a whole play about it, enough credit for their role in the foundation of this country. When you're making biopics, you pick what to leave in and what to leave out. It is the role of people who know about history to point out that, hey, here's why you shouldn't get your history from movies and plays. <laughs> because you might have learned some interesting things about Alexander Hamilton, and I certainly did. Yeah. But there's all, they're also leaving things out for dramatic purposes so that these people don't seem completely unsympathetic. Because, you know, let's be honest here. If we wanted to make a full, in-depth, warts-and-all biopic about the Founding Fathers, it would get fucked up and it would be hmm. really really hard to celebrate some of the things that they did if you focused on the absolute atrocities that they did or that they forgave or that they saw absolutely no irony in yeah, that or, there were, or, or were things that were considered kind of acceptable at the time right. that we just the writing the declaration now, of independence yeah. and saying that all men are created equal and there's a line in the song where one of the Schuyler sisters says I'm going to tell them to include women in the sequel mm. fair but also, he owns slaves, and there's no, there's no proviso in the Declaration of Independence saying, and we're going to get rid of that. Mm. There was some really fucked up shit. There was actually, um, I think every 4th of July, about like movies about this country that are resonating with me. Mm. 
And it's changed over the years. You know, when I was young, I would think about films that were really rah-rah and celebratory, like, you know, Independence Day or Yankee Doodle Dandy or mm. something. And those are fine movies, Yankee well, that, Doodle and, Dandy more so. But And that's the sugar-coated version of patriotism that we still hear bounded about by modern politicians. Often, yes. The, this weird sort of, it's, it's an eternal picnic. Yeah. And we're going to shoot fireworks off of the back of a tank and we're going to show how strong and wonderful America is. Yeah. And that's, those, I mean, there's a few of those that I still really, really like, but the older that I get and the more I know about the way this country works and this country's history works, the more I gravitate towards more complicated films about our nation and its history and indeed just sort of the way it functions on 4th of July. Like, Jaws is one of the great 4th of July movies, because not only is it an awesome killer shark film, but it's also about the way that capitalism blinds us, corrupts us, and mm. makes us put, you know, put our, our financial success in, 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 in ahead of personal safety. To put our lives in danger by going yeah. to the beach on a holiday weekend. Ignoring mm. scientists who are telling us that if you do that, people will die. How curious. Jaws uh, is really on the nose right now. <laughs> it's really timely right now. But even someone uh, like the... But he, uh, Hamilton yeah. came out during the Obama administration, sure. which was when we were ha having a, a more serious conversation about race in this country. Yep. Uh, and it was... Uh, well, I, I think I we're having an even more serious conversation well, we're, now. We're but... having we're having a much more urgent conversation now. Yeah. Now we were just uh, in the Obama years, we were opening up the doors. We were talking about it a little bit more frankly and we were finally starting, just starting, in a polite sort of way, to come to terms with uh, the dark racial past of America. Mm -hmm. uh, now that there's so much white supremacy in the mainstream, uh -huh. and we have a white supremacist premise, and it's being openly, not, there was always in the mainstream, but now it's being uh, openly no, it's, discussed. It's, it's just openly discussed, like brazenly mm -hmm. in the public. Yeah. Uh, now we're having a, a much more. Uh, urgent conversation about what the dark legacy is and how we need to tear down all of these things, not politely and slowly, but right away. Yeah, and it's it's in some cases centuries and, uh, overdue. What the hell is so wrong with us? So Hamilton, ha Hamilton might not... Hamilton, weirdly, it, it's... I feel about Hamilton the same way I feel a little about Rent, in yeah. that it was incredibly urgent at the time and might date incredibly poorly. Maybe. Like, but very I, quickly. I actually agree with you, and mm -hmm. I think that might... I think in terms of, like, the overall tone of it, mm -hmm. it's a celebratory tone overall. Yeah, I think that actually is something that I think different generations are going to respond differently to. I do believe that, at the very least, the music and the lyrics and the performances mm -hmm. are going to remain very, very powerful. But yeah. you're right. There's, and we're having this conversation right now. One thing I was bringing up, though, when I was thinking about sort of the darker United States-centric uh, sort of media that I was thinking about, I was actually thinking about an episode of Masters of Horror called, I think it was The Washingtonians. I didn't see that one. It was from the second season. Okay, there was this TV series, if you're not familiar. It's a second. It was a TV series called Masters of Horror. It aired on Showtime for about two seasons. And the idea was there are all of these iconic horror filmmakers who can't really get work right now so we're gonna do an <laughs> anthology series mm. and all these filmmakers everyone from john carpenter to Stuart gordon joe dante uh they were all gonna get an opportunity for a limited budget to do any horror story they wanted some of them were very very good some of them were very very bad one of them was a good idea but not well executed called the washingtonians in which uh someone found out that there was evidence historical evidence that the founding fathers were cannibals and they've been, was people like, have been hiding this this whole time. It was like a cannibal cult or something, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like a cannibal cult. And there was this whole time. And people were like, we can't let the world find out because it will destroy America. And 
I think a savvier present. I think a savvier dr- uh, draft, a savvier uh, director. I can't remember who did that one. I think it might have been Peter Medic. I was just looking that up. I feel like it might have been Peter Medic, but uh, I feel like s- with a little more cleverness, that could have been a really powerful allegory for all of the tr- atrocities that people know about. Again, slavery that people just are seem eager to gloss over. Hmm. So it was, it was Peter Medak. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I generally like Peter Medak a lot. I don't think that's a particularly mm-hmm. good uh, example of his work, but the idea is really like strikingly surreal and strong because it's actually not that far from the truth. Like it's, mm-hmm. th- they, they committed what would be now called crimes against humanity. So that Hamilton is not letting itself turn into a horror story is something that I can understand. <laughs> I can, but again, we need to have a conversation about what is being left out while we can still, I think simultaneously celebrate what is left in, mm. which is really joyous and really exciting and a really captivating piece mm. of theater. And I think, even though it is of course a film stage production, I think it's captivating cinema as well. Well, absolutely. Um, a lot of people are saying, well, is it a film if they're just filming the stage production? First of all, uh, yes, they yeah. brought a lot of cameras onto stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really complex editing process. Mm-hmm. They didn't just do one run through. They clearly did a couple run throughs and you know edited together the best bits from each. And even if they had, who it cares? Was, it would be like a docu- It would be They documented something. Documentaries or films? Yeah. Well, it, but it's not a documentary. I think it's... Yeah. Here, here's the, the one thing I wish they had actually cut out. It's a stage production, but they did a live stage production. Mm. And they did a live stage production with a live audience who had clearly already seen it before so characters would step out onto stage and everyone would cheer mm-hmm. because they knew the good number was coming right. I hadn't seen Hamilton before I didn't know what was coming I found that to be a little bit galling I actually noticed that and the, I think yeah. it, the production would have actually succeeded better if the, there was no audience if it was Maybe. silent that's something that's that can be the real a real death in, in the in live theater though because actors well, are playing but off you're of at the home audience. Now. It's fine. I know, but they're performing yeah. and they're going to give a different performance for a live audience than they would mm. for nobody. And I think that's something a little different. You feel the energy in the room even if they're silent. And I will say this, having seen a production of Hamilton, not the first production of Hamilton, mm-hmm. but a production of Hamilton and again it was very very good. They're way quieter than usual. <laughs> And I feel like as though a lot of the scenes in which they were applauding were after big numbers. So, okay, Mm. yes, that was a really fantastic job, Leslie Autumn Jr. Or when someone came on and it's not just the character, it's also, I mean, it's not just the actor, it's also the character. So when David Diggs shows up, he plays Lafayette in the first half of the play and Thomas Jefferson in the second. Thomas Jefferson's entrance in the second Mm. half of the play is so great it's the funniest <laughs> damn joke because he's because they point out he spent the american revolution in france and he comes back and is just declared secretary of state and he has a whole song called so what did i miss <laughs> and it's hilarious but we know that thomas jefferson is a big deal in american history in fact he's basically hamilton's main antagonist besides aaron burr in the second half of the play so him showing up is they treat it like a big deal in the play. We know it's going to be a big deal. And then David Diggs comes out and rocks the fucking joint. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the excitement mm-hmm. would come across regardless, because at this point, you're halfway through the play. You know, the rest of it's going to be good. Yeah. But yeah. the rest of the first half was that good. The one thing I remember thinking to myself when it didn't really occur to me when I was listening to the soundtrack, because I heard that many times first. Mm hmm. Because you're not entirely aware of exactly where the act breaks are. At least you, I, I wasn't because I wasn't doing the research. Um, the first half of the play is the American Revolution. Yeah. 
And then the second half begins when Thomas Jefferson comes back and they're creating the American government and Hamilton gets embroiled in one of the first American political sex scandals and it's a whole thing. And he airs his dirty laundry. is actually, you know, like a lot of those guys, a bit of a prick. Yes, yes he was. He might lose you completely in the second half. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, uh, I, I watched this with my wife and she was so outraged at what a dick move, like just the horrible things that Hamilton did in the second half. Uh-huh. We had to stop. So she could just rail about how awful American history was yeah. for a, a, a little bit, and we cooled cooled down and watched the rest. But yeah, yeah. it was like, I, I understand you have to include these things. These are things that happened. We can't pretend they didn't. And happen. they're really important to the story of Hamilton's life. They mm. don't lift out. Yeah, it would be confusing otherwise. Well, but, and, and if you did lift it out, then you're making the greatest showman, where you're just sort of. Celebrating all, you're trying to make the life into something kind of just fun, and then it's not Hamilton anymore. And again, you can still argue that Hamilton left some stuff out. He also left a lot of bad stuff in. Hmm. So we can have that conversation. But the song just before the act break, Hmm. you're all going to like go out into the lobby, get your snacks. Hmm. There's a one minute intermission in this, in the. Disney Plus a good version. amount of time, plenty of time to pause it hmm. if you want to, because you're home, you can do that. But also, if you're not going to pause it just long enough, you're not going to fast forward it. <laughs> you take a breath because that was a big showstopper. Hmm. But the big showstopper just before the act break is a song about writing the Federalist Papers. And I'm going to do my impression, and I'm nowhere near as good at music or lyrics as Lynn manuel Miranda. Hmm. But I'm going to do my impression of this song, which sort of outlines why I think this is, although a well-written song and musically very grand, kind of an odd choice for an act break. Hmm. How did he write so many essays? <laughs> Gosh darn, that was a lot of essays. Well, that's, that's what Hamilton did. He was a writer, yeah. and he wrote political papers and essays, the driest kind of stuff that you hate to read in high school. Yeah, And so that they made that exciting is wonderful. It's just, uh, for me, I actually, I think I would have put it at the beginning of the second act because at the end of the first act, Hamilton did things like steal like cannons from the French and like fell in love and had kids and all these incredible, like huge life-changing moments. And then it ends with him writing more essays than you would expect. He was only supposed to write some essays. Instead, he wrote quite a lot of essays. Yeah, but if those essays are the Federalist Papers, it's okay to sing about I'm them. not saying it's not okay to sing about <laughs> it. I'm just saying it's maybe not the strongest act break. Okay. So for, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of funny that like... And then afterwards, I like I looked up like how long the Federalist Papers are and I realized like, you know, for like professional writers, like in terms of volume, that's actually not as much... As you might think. <laughs> I'm not saying they aren't brilliantly but written and that they weren't buy, incredibly important. You can but buy volumes of the Federalist Papers. It's the si- it's the thickness of a novel. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not like several volumes. but uh, it's, and, it's a, and it's not a particularly it's, long novel either. My point is this. But they're very dense. I know. I've, but I've read them. If they had said, how did he write so many dense and articulate essays, mm. I would have been fine. But instead it's like, he wrote 51 essays. And mm. I'm like, that's, yeah. that's somewhat a decent amount. I know people who write more than that in a month. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of us do. That's freelance writing right now. So, like, part of me is just sort of bemused at, like, uh, this is the thing that we're not only celebrating, but making into the huge act break. When I'm a little bit more impressed by defeating England, which had, like, the biggest army in, like, the Western world at the time. Remember in uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, Mm -hmm. it said, uh, I'm going to give me your story. I'm going to publish it. I'll give you a hundred bucks. It was like, Wow. In 150 years, the rate is the same. I know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jesus Christ, I rarely get paid that much to write a, a, a sing A single article or story. That is a yeah. very rare amount of money for me. Mm. It's very, very, very rare. So, Jesus. yeah, a writer's job has not gotten any easier in the last several hundred years. Um, no. No, but the, the Federalist Papers are very dense, and I, th- and I think this... I think what Hamilton gets at in being so verbose and being so wordy and being so lyrically dense mm-hmm. kind of gets at the way a lot of that early American essayic thinking was like. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in trying to pack in a lot of ideas and understanding that a, a precisely distributed essay could actually have a great deal of, of political power. Well, and it's also worth remembering that the written word was the predominant form of mm. media that people could take home and consume. Yeah. They yeah. weren't listening, obviously, they weren't listening to podcasts, they weren't watching TV. So people were reading more and they were like absorbing more of what mm. they read and what they read could have an even more powerful impact so on the, the country than it does now. And the people who were essentially like Cicero-like orators on the page mm-hmm. were the ones getting a lot of traction. And one of the one of the early American writers who had the most traction was Alexander Hamilton. Very true. And, and it gets into this idea of what a lot of the Federalist Papers were about, which is to say why n- not only that freedoms were important, uh, but why freedoms were important and what freedom actually meant. Because a lot of the things that America was doing were kind of unprecedented, mm-hmm. and people might have been excited to have thrown off you know the 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 reigns of England, but now what? And there are a lot yeah, of different and, ideas as to now what. Well, and and I'll, we're still debating this to this very day as to you know, like the definition of liberty. It's a word we use a lot when we're talking about early American writers because they use the word a lot. And liberty is not just freedom from shackles, freedom from rules. Uh, being able to do whatever you want completely unfettered. In the early American version, the word liberty actually meant a freedom to be a better person, Uh, an ability to advance yourself given proper resources. It was a a direct rebuke of something like a monarchy. And again, it was enormously hypocritical because a lot of people who were espousing this owned slaves. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and I'm sure they weren't. We should never take yeah. that for granted. And I'm sure they fame. weren't even acknowledging that yeah. there was an irony there at all. They didn't because they mm. were racists who owned slaves. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of the also one of the founding principles of this country. And that's why a lot of people are frustrated by Hamilton, because it's not directly addressing that. And it should be. Yeah, uh, that's a fair. Listen, again, but, I really admire this play, but that is a 100 mm. percent fair criticism. But yeah, the, the idea that we should fight for liberty in order to just sort of do whatever we want, even if that means means uh, being dumb and self-destructive is not something that America is founded on. That's not what liberty means. And I think Hamilton gets that. I think Hamilton communicates that through its style and through its words and through its music. We're actually getting a good encapsulation of basic American principles in this musical. Yeah. And a lot, and again, like the, getting, good, the good parts of the basic yeah, American. And also some of the bad parts, uh, the infighting, the uh, immediate rift that existed between the North and the South. The, that was right the, there from uh, the yeah, beginning. The idea that, uh, electability my, my wife pointed this out, that electability, even when you were, were trying to choose the second president was still an issue mm-hmm. who would make a good president. Oh, well, who's the most electable, Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to... No, 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 no. Politicking right away. <laughs> right, pretty much immediately. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's 1789, and we're still we're already deciding this stuff. Yeah, um, so... Mm. I mean, listen, it's Hamilton. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything become kind of a national institution 
pop culturally mm. as quickly as Hamilton has. Like pretty much like before most people had even had a chance yeah, to see it. Debuted in 2015. It, yep. And, it, and pretty much immediately, it was immediately celebrated by almost everybody. And there've been backlashes and most of them I feel have been entirely justified and reasonable. But even so, I think it's impossible to deny the quality and power of the play. Mm. And people love the soundtrack. People admire what Lin-Manuel Miranda managed to do to sort of raise awareness of elements of American history while still doing a disservice to some others. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Hamilton is just this part of the pop culture firmament that has a solid place and it might wane a bit and maybe in the future we'll look back on it and go musically good, but did a lot of things bad. But man, just right now it is huge and I'm very excited that a lot of people are finally going to be able to sit down and actually watch this damn thing mm -hmm. I don't know Without how, spending hundreds yeah. of dollars for tickets. I don't know how Disney got their hands on it, but whatever. Get, yeah. give them, you know. They did. It's, it's fine. I was worried initially when they said it was going to Disney Plus mm -hmm. that it would be mm. chopped up uh, well, in some and, way. And I, I wanted to address this, so thanks for reminding me of that. Uh, they actually did censor it. Mm -hmm. They used the F word, uh, I think, four times throughout Hamilton, mm -hmm. and they either bleeped it out or they kind of obfuscated a little bit. They there's a uh, there's a couple of times when it's they almost use it but they don't continue with the CK part. Yeah. Uh, there's one part in the play where Hamilton literally yells you stupid motherfucker mm. and they beeped it out. That's the one beep. Mm. Now, that being said, that beep is such an obvious like, you know, moment that the beep doesn't really hurt it very much. Oh, and it I'd does. It, it, it's well, really noticeable. It's noticeable. However, the play is not without self-reference. Uh, mm. The play, there's like they'll actually like look to the audience and like in the middle of like certain anecdotes. Like there's a point when they say that like George Washington, like Martha Washington, like named her feral tomcat after Alexander Hamilton, mm. and then Miranda turns to the audience and says, "That's true." Like, that's <laughs> yeah. a fun anecdote, isn't it? Like, they'll do well, that a little the, bit. They'll break the fourth wall, and stylistically, it's anachronistic, but there weren't of any other anachronisms. Like, there weren't pop culture references. Like There are subtle pop culture stuff. references. Well, mm. there are or contemporary references. For mm. example, there's a bit where Aaron Burr is running for president. Mm. And he's running based on, I'm non-threatening. And everyone's just like, yeah, you know, he doesn't really have a hard stance at any issues, but he seems like the kind of person I'd like to have, a, have beer a beer with. with. Yeah, that's, that's a reference to something a lot of people said about George W. Bush when he was running. Mm. I'd like to have a beer with that president. He's very approachable. He seems like a person of the people. First of all, I don't drink beer. Secondly, I want my president to be smarter and more sophisticated than me. I want my I don't president... want to have a beer with my president. I want them to be too busy. Yeah, to, I agree. To have time for beer. I agree, and I think that's a that's a that's something that Hamilton ultimately addresses. Mm. But that's a reference to something that is contemporary. There are musical lyrics references that that mm. are you know cultural things that didn't exist at the time. Well, I, I said it stylistically. It's it's well, anachronistic. You could yeah. look at that as style. You could look at it as mm. kind of as, con, as um, substance but whatever mm. but um but yeah the, the the beep didn't offend me i think and i'm not sure about this when i saw the production in los angeles the scene in which alexander hamilton uh ha has an affair mm. was staged a bit more sensually than oh, this version God. not okay. dramatically so it wasn't like you know prurient mm. But it was no, a bit I'm more... Just, I'm upset that they had to, to... Well, I don't know if they did. Here's, fuzz it out. But here's okay. what I don't know. I don't know if they fuzzed it out. I don't know if they pulled back on the staging, because this is the original staging, and it's not exactly the same. 
It's well, pretty close. There's cameras on stage now. No, but, but yeah. no, but I'm talking about the actual staging itself, the choreography, the actual stage directions. It's very similar to the version I saw, but it's also not exactly the same. So I can't say for certain if that's them doing it because they know it, they they might get it like an R rating mm-hmm. if in theaters where they originally intended this. So they toned that down a smidge. Or if that's just originally the way it was staged. I honestly don't know. I can only speculate. If anyone knows, I'd be very, very curious. Please let us know. If you saw the original uh, stage production and then you saw this version. And you can tell us if there are any other major differences. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, there are sexual jokes in this. There are definitely elements of of the play that they could have theoretically toned down and did not. So this is actually something where if this were released in theaters, I'm not sure this wouldn't get an R. I don't think it should. I'd probably give it a PG-13, but it's on the cusp because there's a lot of frank talk about a lot of things. There's frank talk about a lot of things, and there's some pretty stringent rules at the NVAA about what what cuss words are going to be allowed and what ones aren't. However, they have have cut people slack because their movie is of significant value before. I remember seeing a documentary film uh, in the early 2000s called Gunner Palace, which was uh, about young soldiers, like 18-year-old soldiers, and how... They had taken up shop in, uh, this was during the outbreak of the Iraq War, and they were kind of just illustrating how awful everything was and how ill-prepared they were, and they just really really didn't know what was going on. And of course, they're soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, and s- such is the way of soldiers to cuss a lot. And so they cussed a lot. They used the F word left and right, and yet they appealed to the MPAA and they got a PG-13 rating on that because they felt... I think these are 18-year-old soldiers. I think it's important that like high school kids see this, understand yeah. that this is what a lot of their peers are going through. I've seen a few different movies, mostly mm. documentaries, but a few different movies mm. fly under the same banner. Uh, and it all serves to illustrate, A, the MPAA is really arbitrary and kind of useless, and uh, also, why do we need to bother with this sort of thing? Because Disney Plus insists upon it. If it was not released on Disney+, Plus, if they had put it on any other streaming service, it wouldn't have mattered. They well, just would have left it in, and they wouldn't even gone for a rating. They just have said, hey, look, here's Hamilton, and just as many people would have gone to see it. And, who's, and, and who cares? Who's to say? <laughs> well, in any case, you, although it may have been altered slightly, mm-hmm. it's pretty slight, uh, the play is still intact. The music is still awesome. The performances are fantastic. And um, I do recommend you see it. This is... Probably the most compelling reason to try Disney Plus. <laughs> like, if you don't have kids yeah. and you you, 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 you want like uh, a ton of animated stuff to watch with your kids, that's fine. But like, yeah, okay, The Mandalorian. There's only one season of that. Hamilton, you're gonna watch this thing like ten times. <laughs> it's it certainly wasn't Artemis Fowl. No, <laughs> this is like legitimately great stuff. Um, but yeah, Ham- not the kind of thing we're not unqualified. Hamilton, Josh Gad farting clods of dirt. About the same, right? Yeah, thank you, Disney Plus, for letting us laugh about love again. Um, All right, let's move on. It's from the Goodbye Girl. We know that now. Thank you. Thank you to the people who told us it was from the Goodbye Girl. Um, So anyway, moving on. Uh, Hamilton is not the only movie debuting this week. You might Mm. think it is, because the only people are talking about it, but there are others, and we saw a couple of those. Let's talk about the new Korean horror film, Metamorphosis, which debuted this week on Shudder, and is, for me, kind of the epitome of a mixed bag. There's stuff about this movie I think is fantastic, uh and there's stuff that is kind of goofy. There is about a 20-minute portion, like right around the second act of Metamorphosis, Mm -hmm. that is really great. As scary Uh, as anything. The rest is a really kind of rote, exciting to look at, but 
pretty generic uh, haunting slash exorcism thriller. Yeah. Uh, not even horror, just thriller. It um, opens with uh, an exorcism, and it's you've seen this exorcism before. Yeah. Like a teenage girl is tied to a bed. You get to a, see uh, a her, priest th- is, her throat bulges, her eyes turn into lizard mm-hmm. eyes. and priest she, is throwing uh, holy water on her and shit, and it ends real bad. The girl dies, but not before the demon inside vows to take revenge on the priest's family. Mm-hmm. Cut to... The priest's family. He's got, I think it's his brother and his wife and kids. And they were moving away from their town because that exorcism went so bad that the whole family is now pariahs. Yeah. So they're moving to a new town. Uh, There's a lot of simmering, just typical everyday bullshit resentments. Hmm. And they move into a new house. Their neighbor is super creepy. And then things start getting real bad because the demon doesn't just possess someone. The demon takes people's place and starts, like, saying the quiet parts loud and starts turning the family into abusive, creepy, horrible stuff. Well, and and the idea that uh, simmering resentment that leads to domestic abuse is sort of a has a supernatural origin. That's really cool. That's the cool stuff. Yeah, that's the neat idea. Using demonic possession as a symbol for that kind of uh, interfamily conflict that might arise when you're in close quarters. And I think that plays really well when we're all under quarantine. Yeah. Uh, it's not explicitly about that. It was made um, before quarantine, but, but it, 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 it plays really well. And, and I think a lot of horror movies yeah. that are about sort of like, you know, maybe they're metaphorical, mm-hmm. maybe they're they're not so much, but something like Hereditary, for example, which is about a family with a history of mental illness, but maybe there's a supernatural origin for it. That's something that, sadly, a lot of people can relate to and know how scary that can be in real life. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's always going to be potent, but now it just seems ultra-accelerated. So, in the middle of this movie, where it just you never know which member of the family is going to be the person who snaps this time, mm-hmm. there's, like, seriously 20 minutes where this is as scary as any horror movie on the market. And then it gets silly. Oh, well, it, it, it's 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 more uncomfortable than scary. Like oh. I didn't feel like I felt un- more just sort of I was shifting around in my seat. It's like, oh gosh, I recognize some of this stuff. Well, and, I find you know, that I've, scary. I've heard, heard a lot of stories about how that pushes my buttons. Yeah, That's it, it scary. Just, it, it makes it stresses me out more than it's like frightens me. Um, okay. But then it kind of goes into yeah, silly, frightening territory, and we have. You know, clouds of demonic crows forcing jeeps off the road, yeah. and, and like really—oh no, who won't drink the holy water? Yeah, These kind re- of broad setups, really horrendously acted scenes with a bunch of priests around tables talking about the way exorcism works. And yeah, just the dialogue is really bad. Um, and then it picks and, up again a little bit as they get back to the house. When and they get back the to the house, the demon maybe tricking there's... the family into hurting each other more, and that gets really malevolent and dark. And, and but then, then it gets really broad and silly again. Yeah, and then by the end, it's just this sort of big, kind of action-packed confrontation. And I, I saw. I haven't seen the first Conjuring movie, but I did see the Conjuring two. And you've said that they, structurally they're kind of common in that uh, we meet a family that's being beset by something evil, mm-hmm. and one of the techniques used by the exorcists in those movies Mm -hmm. is to essentially brighten up the house like Mm -hmm. fix the plumbing problem so they're not stressed out about that anymore Mm -hmm. clean the kitchen demons are attracted to your negative energy so let's the the fridge with groceries and if you're not concerned with like these little things anymore there's a lot less resentment and pain and the ghosts aren't going to be as attracted to you as a, a haunting object yeah basically and uh 
And then, of course, there's a big confrontation at the end because the demon sort of, like, redoubles its efforts and then yeah. all of a sudden, like, appears in physical form and they have to, like, beat it with chairs. It's a good uh, It's a good structure. It's a good structure. And yeah. uh, instead of the uh, the exorcist sort of brightening up the, these people's lives, we just get to see how horrible the demon is ruining them. Yeah. But the climax is the same when it, like, just sort of shows up in physical form and is like, I will eat your liver. And... <laughs> You know, people are like, I don't think somebody actually pukes a, a, a geyser of black vomit, but they may but no, as well. They, no, they spit, kind of of, they spit up a lot of red, like bright, yeah, impossible red. 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 Like, right. that's only these demons do. Um, like it's not blood. It's like demon juice. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, like you know, so when, hammer horror when, blood. When we're in, it's like poster paint. Just. When we're in like the simmering real life resentment for like a very brief chunk, this is actually a really good movie. But yeah. then it just becomes schlock after well, a while one thing that I've noticed and, I've, and I'm not an expert in Korean horror but I mm. have noticed that there are fewer like in American movies there tends to be a consistency of tone and if you break that tone it's considered a flaw but I don't necessarily see that in, in cinema from all around the world mm. and I've seen a lot of movies that go from scary to funny not simultaneously, which is what a lot of American movies would try to do, is try to keep mm. them balanced, but kind of go willy-nilly. One of the films I think of is The Wailing, which is a Korean horror movie that oh, made, a big, the Wailing, made a yeah. big impact a couple of years ago. A lot of people saw it. W A I L Whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people said it was one of the best horror movies in years. I liked it a lot, but personally, and I acknowledge that this is my you know sort of Western you know storytelling upbringing talking. Mm-hmm. But I found it a little inconsistent, and I found it a little frustrating on how something would be genuinely subtle and scary, and then there'd be this weird, broad, zombie scene where people are trying to kill each other, and it's something out of a Sam Raimi cartoonish horror movie, and that can be a bit jarring. However, what I am finding is that the more movies like this I watch, the more I am able to appreciate what a ride that can be. So <laughs> Metamorphosis may be inconsistent in some ways. And yeah, personally, I think if the entire movie had been like that middle part, it might have been so tense, it would be almost unbearable in a Twin Peaks fire walk with me kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I think in some respects it might be stronger and scarier, but I didn't dislike watching this. There are parts okay. of this movie that are laugh out loud silly mm-hmm. or just badly plotted. Like they find out that like... The demon only controls people after they, like, leave the room and when they come back, they're the demon. And so they're spending, like, most of the time in the living room together. And then someone just leaves. Don't! <laughs> what if you just don't? And I'm yelling at the screen. And then I stop myself and I pause it. And I had a moment of quiet re- reflection where I'm like, we live in a world. And I'm not the first person to bring this up. A lot of people said this kind of thing online. But it really came, I really came face to face with this movie. In a world. No, we live in a world right now. Where people are told, hey, if you don't want you and people you know to die or suffer unnecessarily, just wear a mask when you go out and Mm. gloves whenever you can and wash your hands whenever possible and try to stay six feet away from people whenever possible. Mm. And people aren't going, that's that's reasonable. We all want to make sure everyone's safe. Uh, Not a lot of people, but like a significant number of people are saying, no. I'm going to go anyway. Uh, I'm going to not wear a mask because reasons. Liberty. There it is again. But basically because reasons. These are Mm. people who are, they've been told by people who actually know what they're talking about. 
That's the what would it, what would be safe to do? What would be less harmful, less risky? And they're doing shit anyway. Yeah, well, and I'm yeah, looking the, at horror the, movies. The you can't tell me what to do, philosophy. Yeah, and I'm looking yeah. at horror movies, and I'm like, what I would normally judge them for? Oh, why would they go down into the basement right mm. now? It's so stupid. And I'm just like, no, yeah, a lot of people would probably do that, wouldn't they? <laughs> I can't really judge, so well, I got a little bit more forgiving on this one, and I just mm. sort of sat back and enjoyed the roller coaster. There's some fun gore. There's a couple of fun twists. Well, here, here's the thing about the, those moments. I think there's another layer on top of that. Okay. Uh, I got to go to Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum in Las Vegas, which I recommend once you can go back to Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> they Zach- have ads now saying Las Vegas is open, but don't go. Don't. Yeah, don't. <laughs> don't. Okay. Go, go, to, go, a hotel, go to a hotel, go straight up to your room and don't leave. Fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, don't even do that. They actually just say like the, the recycled air is like one of the worst things oh, you there, can yeah, do. Yeah. For a, so don't go. Yes. Don't, don't, don't go. Don't go. I know Vegas, they need the but, money, um, but we also need to live. <laughs> But uh, they had a, 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 a haunted radio, now haunted, mm. uh, which like was picking up on uh, spectral white noise, oh, yeah. and, and like was tuned to the haunted object. And first of all, how do you how do you tune a radio to a haunted object? I don't know, but yeah. it's they figured it out for you. Yes, yeah, I don't Bacon's, know how to I don't know how to make a radio. Someone did. Thanks. Yeah, and. <laughs> And, uh, and you went in there, and, and it was really loud. They, of course, made it really scary for you, stepped in this tiny room. And, of course, they're asking if you... A lot of people have gone in here, and they've come out with, like, welts. And some people, like, had sort of allergic reactions and these weird reactions to going in this room. And some people said, no, I'm not going to go in that room. I'm too smart. I've seen horror movies. I've seen horror movies, too. I always want to go want them to go down there, because I want to see the monster. <laughs> well, that's your call. I, I understand they're going to die fictionally in a movie, but yeah. if I have to do that myself, why not? I want to see the monster. So I went into that room, because I'm a damn fool. <laughs> and that's why you have this mysterious welt to this day. No, but my skin began itching. Did it? Yeah. It was a, I'm not sure it was, it was this weird psychosomatic response or if it really was a demon in there, but yeah. That's like, funny. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and they said and we're yelling over the static. What what's what's going on? You'll ask it a question. So I yelled, "What's your favorite food?" I didn't know what to ask it. <laughs> I mean, it was just a this loud noise and of course out of the loud noise all I could hear was you it's like oh god I gotta get out of here that's it's great it's great go to, go to Zach Vegas Haunted Museum it's awesome that's <laughs> is it real sure <laughs> you can see his hands just sort of fly up yeah. why, not? Sort of, why, why not know. why not sure it's why fun not? it's fun to imagine that it is it's fun fun to imagine that it is anyway I'm, anyway so listen uh, Metamorphosis is a, is a I say it's a mixed bag movie mm-hmm. but I didn't have a bad time watching it mm-hmm. and I you know if we were there aren't a lot of like a production horror movies being released right now and this is this was a good mm-hmm. time for me as someone who enjoys the genre uh, overall and we'll talk about mm-hmm. it in a minute when we do our ratings but what's your mm-hmm. general takeaway on it? Uh, I, I think it uh, there's way too much schlock into uh, it kind of outbalances the quality stuff like I think there is a good idea and it was like it had me going for a while but I realized that I was still looking for a metaphor like 20 minutes after it already transformed back into schlock yeah it's like oh wait no this actually doesn't have a lot on its mind after all it it kind of like stumbled into some interesting ideas I think entirely by accident maybe Uh, okay and then our last new release for the week is actually a new Hirokazu Koreeda film I love Hirokazu Koreeda and I I had some issues with my screener of this I only caught like the first 20 minutes alright but uh, Hirokazu Koreeda I think is one of your favorite uh, filmmakers working today Uh, so I'm excited to hear all about this one I haven't seen a lot of Hirokazu Koreeda but he's been compared to Ozu uh, in in Mm -hmm. that he likes to make very subdued family dramas 
not a lot of like big cinematic flourishes. He does you know these very sedate long takes, uh, and he t- tells stories of uh, fa- uh, families, but like unconventional families, the way families. Uh, perhaps don't relate very well, and especially the way families tend to discard one another. Uh, he's done mm. two really great films. One was called Nobody Knows, and one was called Shoplifters, which was really uh, highly acclaimed a couple of years ago, about the way people are sort of cast off. Uh, his new film, The Truth, a.k.a. Verité, uh, is the first film he's made in French, uh, and it stars a mostly French cast, although we have uh, Ethan Hawke sort of lurking around the edges, I guess, just to give the film some American cred. Sure. Uh, he doesn't. He's like, Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. He's he, just sort of there to give us a little, <laughs> oh, Americans won't watch it unless they have someone like Ethan Hawke. Well, Steve, at least Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, like he plays a significant role. Ethan Hawke contributes almost nothing. To this movie, he's mm. just sort of he's he's like the husband. He wanted the to work with Hirokatsu Koreeda, and yeah. that's that. Um, but yeah, uh, Verite uh, is about Catherine Deneuve playing a very Catherine Deneuve type actress. Uh, she's a French actress who has uh, been a legend for many many years and has sort of sacrificed her family. Uh, in order to become to be a movie star, and she's so concerned with how she presents that she's kind of left her family behind. Her uh, grown daughter is played by Juliette Binoche. This is the first film with Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche. Wouldn't you know it? Hmm. Um, Juliette Binoche somehow didn't make it into that film. Eight Women, which starred like seven other uh, French actress legends, all all on camera together. It was really the Francoise own film is really good. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, she. Uh, Juliette Binoche comes back to France to sort of reconnect with her mother, and they've had a big falling out uh, just years and years ago, and about what a terrible mother she is. And she's there to sort of oversee the publication of an autobiography that Catherine Deneuve has written called The Truth, about, you know, what is the real truth? You know, what is the truth about my life? And she's afraid that they're going to sort of air dirty laundry, and it turns out that what they're revealing, what Julia Pinoche tries to give her is the actual truth about what a terrible mother she is, and they all have to kind of come to terms with what a terrible mother she is. So it's Hirokatsu uh, Koreeda's Mommy Dearest. Um, it's... What, what film was I thinking? I'm not Mommy Dearest, but I've seen other films about how, you know, neglectful artist fathers, mm. or, or usually it's fathers, in this case it's a mother. Yeah. Uh, I can see why Hirokazu Koreeda would be... Uh, attracted to this material because it is about families trying to reconnect and the difficulties that have arisen in the years. Uh, but for some reason this time around, I was actually really disappointed. And I didn't think I'd ever be disappointed by Hirokazu Koreeda. You shut your mouth. Look, <laughs> you get out of this, this is, podcast. This is also a year where I liked a Michael Bay film. So everything is really topsy turvy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hirokazu Koreeda has s- sort of, I don't know. He's made it so French that it becomes almost chintzy after a while. It becomes really kind of corny and sappy. Hirokazu Koreedo has been really, really good about infusing these family dramas that might seem melodramatic on paper, seem really kind of natural and really kind of slow moving and really kind of intimate. That intimacy is gone here. And I think it's because maybe he's working with this celebrated international cast Mm. that it feels a lot more movie than any of his previous films. It feels a lot more uh, brazenly commercial than a lot of his other movies. I I haven't seen this Mm. one and I'm not super familiar with the rest of his work, but it's Mm. interesting to me when filmmakers 
start making movies in other countries and in other languages that maybe are not their original, mm-hmm. uh, their places of origin. But like, look at what happened when Francois Truffaut made Fahrenheit 451. Mm. A movie which I like, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a true film. Yeah, movie. it's just a totally different animal. Mm. Like, he's doing his a different, weird mm. thing. And I don't know if he's trying to make a movie that he thinks, like, like Americans or the English or whatever would like. Mm. Or if this is what his, like, impersonation of those movies are. And if it's sort of mildly satirical. But it's completely separate. In his canon well, from like anything else that he's done. Going to another country and filming in another language is, uh, you're going to necessarily be influenced by the mores and the work of that place. Yeah. Uh, so even though he's Hirokazu Kuraeda, I think if he maybe shot in Japan with French actors speaking French, it would have felt more like Hirokazu Kuraeda, but I think he shot it in France. Mm. So we're getting a lot more influence of the place. I feel this is true, uh, to cite another example, um, Guillermo del Toro. Mm. I think his Spanish language films are vastly superior to his English language films. Well, they're just completely uh, different. Like, his yeah, Spanish yeah. films are, tend to be made with a lot of subtlety yeah, and sort of a fairy tale sort of uh, passion, well, and a lot of his American or his English language films are broad and funny. There, there, yeah, there's a lot more humor in them. Yeah. There's a lot more action in them. He never would have made something like Pacific Rim in Spanish, and uh, his Spanish language films are, are also really. Are, that's what well, maybe, maybe would, maybe I, wouldn't. I, but, uh, I think it's a matter of he likes his blockbuster entertainments broad, and mm. he likes his horror movies and drama subtle. And I but think he it's also, just between Shall Me. He also likes when you watch a lot of his horror movies, it, the Spanish language films. There are uh, overwhelmingly political. Mm. They're all about the Franco regime, and uh, he uh, is making a lot of comments about Spanish politics. Sure. Uh, in his horror movies. That's what Pan's Labyrinth is about. That's what Kronos is about. And it's what The Devil's Backbone is about. And I think The Devil's Backbone mm. and Pan's Labyrinth Mo- mostly are, are Devil's back- his, Mostly his Devil's Backbone movies. and Pan's Labyrinth, I think. I don't know if Kronos is that political, but... Uh, no, it's it's in there, though. Yeah, and, sure. and, you know, some people say, well, you know, there's some comment on America in the 50s in The Shape of Water, but it's not nearly as overwhelming mm. as the stuff he and did it's, in And it's in more Spanish. arch. It's more yeah. arch in that movie as well. It's mm. actually... It's, it's not... I it, like the movie. It's, it's not subtle. No, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. The movie's insanely blunt. There's, uh, a, there's a damn musical number with a fish man. It's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I, I, I get, that's another one of those movies. It's like, well, if, if you'd like slowed it down and cut the budget in half, I think there would have been like a lot. He would have worked more on the ideas rather mm-hmm. than the visuals. Um, but we can talk about Del Toro more another time. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just really upset about how we're, we're getting great performances from Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche. And they have a really good palpable chemistry together. There's a really good shot where, Catherine Deneuve uh, is on the telephone saying, uh, she's saying something that's, I don't want to reveal what it is, but she says something that's kind of breaking Juliette Binoche's heart. Like they had a big moment and then she gets on the phone and completely undoes it by saying Mm -hmm. something out of, like out of character for the scene. And we're focused on Catherine Deneuve in the foreground and Juliette Binoche is out of focus in the background. Mm -hmm. And yet we can still see the horrendous disappointment about how she's just being pushed out of that moment. That's a good like filmmaking Hirokazu Koreeda moment where we capture a little bit of the filmmaker's subtlety. But otherwise, yeah, it feels really kind of broad and even sentimental, which is something I never expected from this filmmaker. Mm. And something I didn't really find myself uh, on the wavelength with. I, and I like a good sentimental movie, movie if it's done well. But yeah, here it's just weirdly sappy That's for bad. the ambition of the material and the power of the cast and how much I like this filmmaker. Well, that sucks. Yeah. 
Okay, well, let's just get in, right into it. On the critically acclaimed scale, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus, where C is average. It's an mm. average movie. C- minus is below average, where it's either not recommended or genuinely terrible. And C- plus is above average, where we generally recommend it or it's the best movie ever made. Uh, where do you put Hirokatsu Koryet as the truth? Uh, it's a low C. I okay. mean, it's, it's not a wash. I'm a, like I said, I was disappointed. Uh, so it's... I, when when you're expecting a masterpiece and you get something kind of bland mm. that might have me judging, judging it a little bit more harshly, but just as it stands, it's a little bit just boring. All right. Well, uh, mm. uh, for the film Metamorphosis, now mm. on a shutter, uh, I'm going to give it like a slightly high C. Like it's not like a high high C. Like oh, it's on the cusp of greatness. Mm. But I generally found this movie very entertaining, even though it's inconsistent in terms of uh, tone and sometimes quality. I was never bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a good time. Parts of it were genuinely scary. The rest of it was genuinely entertaining. Uh, so, uh, yeah, could, you could do a lot worse this weekend. Let's put it that way. I suppose so, yeah. You could yeah. watch this instead of Yummy. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so you so, would also give it a C? Also, also a C. Not in... Just in the middle. In the middle. Yeah. All right. It's and, average. <laughs> and then Hamilton. Hamilton. Uh, well, Hamilton's a C plus, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually my, like, maybe it's not the best movie of the year, but I think it's one of the better experiences we've had cinematically this year because whatever issues you may have with the material and how they're portrayed, and those are all very, very valid, it is a breathtaking accomplishment musically, in terms mm. of choreography, in terms of its performances. Um, I think it's hard not to get wrapped up in it, even though perhaps mentally you should question parts of it. Mm. So this is definitely on my list of the best stuff I've seen so far this year. Oh, and you may have noticed we're not doing an episode about the best movies so far this year, because there haven't been as many movies so far this year. So I think we'll probably just do our best of the year at the end of the year. Well, but, there, there have been a lot, but yeah, well, yeah, we just haven't done it. We just haven't done it. But uh, yeah, Hamilton, big old C+. Definitely check it out. Do not miss it. You finally get a chance and it is worth it. For sure. Yeah. And now, the critically acclaimed streaming club is going to take, um, actually, not as hard a turn as you might think. Because Bugsy Malone is actually a, an interesting double feature with Alexander Hamilton, and that they are both musical period pieces in which the casting is unconventional. In the case of Bugsy Malone, uh, the debut feature film from director Alan Parker, uh, it is a Prohibition-era gangster movie in which every single one of the cast members is under the age of 17. Yeah, they're all kids, and but they're all playing adults. They're playing adults. They're telling a gangster story, but instead of uh, killing people with Tommy guns, they threw like cupcakes and pies at each other. Yeah, and when they get hit with cupcakes and pies, evidently they're they're so humiliated that they just leave town. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like. <laughs> It's it's kind of like they're being killed. Uh, yeah. And so there's gangsters who wear fedoras and talk about committing crimes, but they're all talking about pie guns. Yeah. Uh, there's also showgirls in cabaret. Yeah. And, and they're all and all, all played by young girls. And uh, there's some recognizable actors who continue to work into adulthood. There's Scott Bale. As the title who, who character. Who plays Bugsy Malone. And there's, there's Jodie uh, Foster. Jodie Foster plays Tallulah, the gangster's mall. And in a very small role as a character named Babyface, you have Dexter Fletcher, who would go on to star in a bunch of Guy Ritchie movies and direct uh, the Elton John musical Rocket Man. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. All right. So it's an interesting group of people here. Mm. 
And uh, it's an it's got an odd genesis. This story, Alan Parker was apparently uh, trying to decide what to do for his first feature film, and he was telling stories to his kids. And much like the Princess Bride got started by William Goldman telling just making up fairy tales mm-hmm. to his kids off the top of his head, he was telling his kids stories based off of movies that he had seen when he was younger mm-hmm. about you know gangster stuff with James Cagney. And the kids got really into it, and then they were just like, "Well, why can't kids be the star of these things?" So he was like, "Okay." Kids like to fantasize about gangster stuff. I'm going to make a gangster movie where it's nothing but kids. Yeah, okay. Uh, apart from The Princess Bride, when has this been a good idea? Well, Sharkboy and Lava Girl, obviously. I was, yeah, I was going to say, Sharkboy and Lava Girl is based on the same idea. <laughs> Lady in the Water is based on the same idea. It's based on stories yeah. that uh, M. Night Shyamalan was making up with his kid. Uh, and there's also Bugsy Malone. Which is a very strange animal. It really is. Uh, this is a weird beast. It's it's a it's a weird idea. I put this. I know you're a fan of Robert Altman's Popeye, but Huge I put fan. I, I put it in the same camp as something like Popeye. This keep in mind. This is you know the mid seventies. This movie came out in nineteen seventy six, and this was a time when a lot of the mainstream releases were just trying a, all kinds of weird stuff. Mm. This is when Ken Russell was big. You know. Mm. Uh, this is the era of Tommy. Uh, Alan Parker would go on to do Pink Floyd The Wall. Uh, there's a lot of experimentation going on with mainstream commercial cinema in the mid-1970s. So what are kids watching in the 1970s that would elicit something like Bugsy Malone? I have uh, no idea. I, I guess some lesser Disney films? Uh, in, yeah, in the mid seventies, like, you know, ragamuffins in the depression era, going yeah. about you know in a gnome mobile of some kind. That this was right before Star Wars, so things were about to change, but they hadn't yet. Yeah, things were in Bugsy Malone territory before Star Wars rewrote well, I mean, the book. We had stuff. We had you know, Jodie Foster had already been in quite a few movies at the time, and she was often mm. playing like a young sort of re- rebel or or. Yeah criminal i think in a couple of those and that yeah, might have made, been part of it but we also yeah she was also in freaky friday for instance yeah. um so yeah alan parker dissatisfied with the freaky fridays of the world said i'm gonna do something uh, a little bit more exciting something with music you know it's gonna be a live action musical but it stars kids because I, mu- we need to have more kids in leading roles and the music by the way is by paul williams who had already done at this point phantom of the paradise which wasn't a hit but which was respected and was nominated for an academy award for its music and is a uh Cult, cult film today. Yep. It's and, also very strange. And Paul Williams, of course, would go on to uh, you know write songs for the Muppets, and he was a famous songwriter already. He'd already won awards. Mm. He's a great musician, and he wrote some very, very fun songs for this. Mm. In particular, I'm fond of the Henchman song. The Bad Guys song. We yeah. could have been anything that we wanted to be. <laughs> and if... Anyway. Um... The, the the story is a, a pretty typical gangster story. Uh, the kids are giving a wide variety of quality performances. Yeah, as in some are quality, yeah. some are I th- I think, some are not great. I think Scott Bayo is pretty good. I think Jodie Foster is very good. Jodie Foster um, is clearly the only like well trained yeah. actor. Like she's done a lot of acting. Jodie Foster the, is is maybe the fifth lead in this movie, but she steals every second she's on the, screen. The, she's really talented. The female lead, a character named Blousey, who uh, Bugsy Malone ends up sort of romancing, mm-hmm. is played by an actress named uh, Flory uh, Flory Duggar. Mm-hmm. Flory Who's Duggar acting after this. Yeah, Flory Duggar only did one movie, and it was Bugsy Malone, which is a pity because I think she's really good too. Oh yeah, and she seems to be feeling the pressure and. I am unfortunately 
picturing the set of Bugsy Malone and the army of stage parents waiting just off set, <laughs> kind of pressuring their kids into doing a better job, mm. and some of them are clearly really stressed out by it. And I feel like Flory Duggar was maybe that, that that's something that was being processed on camera, but she really seemed very put upon. She was bringing a little bit of a tragic element to her performance because, that none of the other kid actors had. Well, because the other, the other actors in this movie, like every other character, they all seem really this happy movie, to be there. Well, the other characters in these, in this, in this movie are playing mostly gangsters or people who are part of the world of organized crime and are very confident and happy about it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the flousy Brown are, mm. uh, uh, was it Blousey? Blousey. Yeah. I think the, I, mixed, the, I think I think I confused her first yeah. real name and her first name in the movie. Yeah. But uh, Blousey Brown, she is a up and coming singer who dreams of going to Hollywood, and her dreams have been repeatedly dashed. Mm. She is quite miserable, clearly on the verge of. She she can't really give up. She has nowhere else to go. But she's feeling defeated, mm. and nothing quite goes her way in this. Even though the ending of the movie is. Odd and kind of happy. Well, everybody, she, everybody dies. But they do they? We need to talk about the ending because it's really weird. Uh, she she never like gets what she wanted. She's actually a very depressing character. She's got kind of the um, almost a cautionary tale kind of vibe to mm. a lot of her performances. Whereas Bugsy Malone, our main character, played by Scott Baio, um. He's just chipper and carefree, and he starts off as he's a fight manager, but then he meets uh, uh, Blousey, and he wants to uh, become her manager as a musician, while he's also trying to romance her, but then he ends up getting swept up in this prohibition um, sort of a gang war between uh, a dapper criminal mm-hmm. and a sort of an Al Capone-type criminal. And they're just shooting pies at each other from all of, from all over every which angle, and Bugsy Malone ends up getting sort of thrown into it, and sort of helping raise an army to f- fight the bad guys. But bad I use guys. bad guys with air quotes because none guy, of them are yeah. good. Fat, Fat Sam and Dandy Dan are the two gangsters. It, yeah, it it feels like something that kids would have written. Uh, yeah, it doesn't just like feel the like little rascals yeah. wanted to stretch their muscles. Yeah. I'm like, hey, we know we're the little rascals, but just once, can we do a white heat? But we're <laughs> gonna play all the roles, and like Warner Brothers or RKO, whoever had the whoever was doing it at the time, was just like, all right, you get one. And this is what Bugsy Malone is. And, and here's the thing: the story is about criminals killing each other. Yeah, it's, fundamentally, I mean, they it's, don't. It's, it's pies, pies, but, but yeah, yeah. The, like we don't see blood; we just see whipped cream but yeah. they're still killing each other and there's still a lot of really disturbing things about controlling women mm-hmm. and running a cabaret there's a lot of young women in revealing outfits which is really uncomfortable yeah and all of these stories about like sexual infidelity and Jodie Foster performs this really seductive number and and what it is is a lot of adults tarting up young kids and having them play grown up i feel like it's the same way adults treat prom or uh, mm. I, I I went to a, a performance at my church once, and it was uh, for the United Methodist Women, which is you know all older women at my church, and they trotted out a bunch of like five year old girls and put them in poodle skirts and had them dance to a fifties number. Yeah. Okay, great. And the, and the women in the audience were teens in the fifties, so this kind of was nostalgia for them. The problem was the song they played was Grease Lightning from Grease. Oh yeah. 
Have you listened to the lyrics of that thing? Yeah, it's not exactly family friendly. No. It's yeah. like we're going to get us lots of tit and there's like there's cuss words in that. It's really yeah. sexual a lot of sexual innuendo. But nobody in the audience really cared. They the sound wasn't that great. So everybody's just sort of, "Oh, isn't that sweet?" Mm. They're they're pre- they're playing adult. And I feel like that's all Bugsy Malone has going for it. Mm. Is this sort of cutesy stunt of kids playing adult mm. and it while the songs are actually really catchy and, yeah. and quite good for the most part, I feel like there's no, there's nothing else to recommend Bugsy Malone. No, it's only its concept. Yeah. And, it's, and you can tell, the, the interesting thing about Bugsy Malone is, okay, the interesting thing about Bugsy Malone is that it exists, basically. Mm. Because the story isn't that interesting, it's not very well put together, um, even like the best members of the cast have very little to do. Um, the plot barely makes sense a lot of the time. And ultimately, it just feels like, hey, we got some kids to pretend to be gangsters. And it's just mm. like, so we're watching like a junior high production of Guys and Dolls. And if yes, uh, but not as good as that. Yeah. And, and we're we're meant to sort of forgive the low quality because, oh, it's just kids and they're having fun. Mm-hmm. But this is a professional feature film. Yeah. Should and there be more professionalism in it? There's some professionalism. First off, it looks really, really good. I like the production mm. design in particular. It's a very slick, you know, oh, not, yeah. not, not slick, but like it looks really grindy, well, and, but a very they, good looking and movie. They, and they busy up the frame in a good mm. way. It's a good set. There's a lot yeah. of kids in the background doing business to make it feel really lived in. There's a lot of novel sort of uh, production, uh, um, production design. Like the cars are all like, rid- like ridden Pedal bicycles. Cars, yeah which were custom made for the film just so they, mm. that kids could drive them. That's kind of fun. So there's all of these kind of weird sort of alternate reality kind of stuff in it. But, but, um, how, but how is this different from like, pretend you're there like on the Muppet baby? No, exactly. And that's 100% yeah. right. And that's the thing that I find frustrating about this movie is you get the gimmick pretty fast and mm. then it never goes anywhere with it. I think until the last moment, the movie ends with a massacre. Well, yeah, because like the the Dapper Dan is coming into Fat Sal, uh, Fat Sam, Fat Sam. Hmm. Dapper Dan is going into Fat Sam's speakeasy. Fat, they, fat, they, fat Sal's a, a sandwich joint here in L.A. Thank you. That's where I got it from. Hmm. Uh, but he's going to a speakeasy which sells sarsaparilla, and uh, <laughs> and uh, but he doesn't know is that he's walking into a trap and everyone's got pie guns. And they start shooting pie at everybody, and everybody gets massacred. Everybody, minor characters, major characters, everybody is quote-unquote killed. Hmm. And afterwards, they all realize how stupid this was. Yeah, and they and, sing a song about what a silly thing this well, is. Well, they sing a song about, uh, they had that Genshman song, which I liked. Hmm. Uh, we're the best step. We're the best at being bad guys, mm. and they reverse that, and they make it a song about what if we became the best at being good. So it's all about how okay, we had our fun, we played gangster, and now we're all gonna grow the fuck up. Mm. And then there's a song which Coca Cola ended up using in an ad like 20 years ago, which is actually really sweet and catchy. Uh, you give a little love, and it all comes back to you. La 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 mm. la la la, uh, and the idea I think is to finally just like blow the lid off of the whole concept and just say two things: one, isn't crime fundamentally immature and stupid, mm. and two, isn't it fundamentally negative to encourage kids to fantasize about all of these negative, horrible things? Which maybe you could have gotten away with if you weren't trying to sell us tickets based on that premise. <laughs> so that kind of fundamentally falls apart. Mm. So 
I don't think it works. I think the musical numbers are really interesting, and if you wanted to see a couple of them like on YouTube or something, that's probably the best way to go. Yeah. This movie has an odd legacy, though, because it did not do well in America. It ended up coming out in America as part of a double feature with Bad News Bears, which had already been out for six months. Which is way more hard-edged than this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, kids are, like, smoking and drinking and being using, bastards using to each other. racial epithets. Yeah, yeah. It's real, real hard-edged. Um, for today. Like, if you watch it today, you'd be going, damn, this was a kid's movie? Holy crap. Um, but the point is, the movie had been out for a while, and so not a lot of people were exposed to Bugsy Malone at all. In Britain, this was a pretty big hit, and it actually still is to this day. It's one of those movies that will show up on lists of, like, the best musicals in Britain, but not in America. <laughs> um, because, I don't know, it just it connected mm. with something over there. People found mm. it really, really entertaining. I've seen and, it on lists of the best gangster movies. And I will occasionally see this premise dug up in music videos. Um Edgar Wright did a music video that was inspired by Bugsy Malone. Hmm. That's it's called, I think it's Edgar the Blue Tones. Who, who is English. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Edgar Wright did a music video for a band, I think it was called the Blue Tones. Uh, that's basically Bugsy Malone singing a song. It's all one shot hmm. inside the speakeasy, and it's just full of kids wearing cool like 1920s attire. And then at the end, there's another giant pie fight. Hmm. And then Spike Jones did a music video for the Notorious B.I.G., which I actually hmm. thought was a much more interesting uh, uh, encapsulation of this concept, where he took basically all of the standard tropes from any rap music video, but if you cast it with kids, you start realizing that a lot of this is really irresponsible. Yeah. And the contrast is more effective in two minutes. <laughs> the two-minute version of this is way better than the feature version. The Edgar Wright one got the sort of the fun of it, like we're playing dress up and just putting on a little show for kids. Mm. And the Spike Jones one is basically just like, and it's really fucked up. Yeah. That the movie the, is just... The things we feel free to do as adults are actually really horrible. Yeah. And if you picture kids doing it, you realize just how horrible they yeah. are. The, the, the contrast, these sort of cognitive dissonance hits home in that short, impactful way, mm. way better than it does in this movie where they're actually trying to, like, lure you into the world and try to get you invested in the characters. Mm. And it's just like, no, you've got one thing going for you besides Paul Williams' music, cognitive mm. dissonance. And, and that fades after a couple of minutes. And here's another thing that uh, I think a lot of filmmakers and makers of uh, children's entertainment feel, that if you're going to make a movie or a television show for a kid, it needs to feature a kid. As if that is a, just not true. As, as if a kid is not imaginative enough to relate to an adult character. Kids love Star Wars. How many kids are in Star Wars? Like the first Star Wars movie. None. Before before they had young Darth yeah, Vader. The whole trilogy, I don't think we had any. Yeah, and, and a lot of people were really uh, down on Return oh, of the Ewok. Jedi. There was, like a, there was like a kid Ewok. Yeah, like, that like there's it. a baby yeah. Ewok and that's a cute little thing, but that's like a teddy bear. It's not, yeah. like, it's not a human kid. Uh, yeah, the the idea that kids need to see kids on screen is just a fallacy uh, in in order for them to be entertained. Now, I understand that there's a little bit of there's a, also a phenomenon where a little kid will want to see a kid who is slightly older than them on screen to yeah, sort of kid, be an aspirational figure. A kid who's like maybe in the fourth grade might want to watch a high school story. Yeah, because they're going to say, "Oh wait, they're still young enough that I can kind of." cast myself forward into that role but kids are kids yeah. kids are young they don't have any power in their so, uh, in their lives and so uh, in my experience when i was a kid i yeah. fantasized about being 
older and getting mm-hmm. to do the cool stuff I'd be able exactly. to do when I was exactly. free to so, pick my own job or I go out think, on adventures. I don't think I know a lot of people saw Bugsy Malone when they were kids and they liked it just because uh, they could see some kids singing and dancing. It's exciting to see kids performing, but I don't think that necessarily is the key for having kids enjoy this sort of thing. Well, even beyond that, we we haven't even discussed one mm-hmm. of the other elephants in the room, which is the kids don't sing. No, they have adults come in and sing for them. The production apparently was, or at least Paul Williams, part of it was so rushed that he was writing the music and recording it wherever he could while he was touring and stuff. And he would send them the recordings, but they would be so soon before they filmed them. They just used those recordings. They just had to use those recordings. And so they never like got the, I don't know why they couldn't do it in post, Mm. but they never got the kids singing their own songs. Some of the adults sound more like kid voices than others. Some of them don't sound anything like child actors <laughs> at all. Mm. And it's surreal. This is a surreal, weird film. And it won awards. It won the, I think it won the uh, BAFTA Award for Best Screenplay, which I don't understand. Okay. I don't know what it was up against that year, but that's weird. And it also won an award for Jodie Foster, but she was also nominated, I think, for uh, Taxi Driver as a like, combined yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was just a big year for Jodie Foster, so I don't think it was all Bugsy Malone, but she's really good in this. Um, but this is a weird piece of cinema history. Mm. And it's quick. I'll give it that. It's 93 minutes, but that's still too long for this. This is a music video's worth of idea mm. in a feature film. So, yeah, I don't... It's so strange. I almost feel obligated to make sure people are aware of it, which of course we're doing here. Yeah. But it's I don't actually recommend it. Yeah. Um listen to the I, soundtrack. I, I agree with and you. That's I, about it. I agree with you. I think the best way to go about it is just to sort of watch the musical numbers yeah. out of context. And I think you're you're gonna get just as much out of that yeah. than you would out of like watching the feature film itself. Yeah. Uh, weird it, flick. I mean, it is it is pretty short. It's like ninety four minutes or something. But so, it's a weird uh, flick. Man. It's, it's yeah, it's it's a strange idea, and it's clearly not made for kids. Which was I don't know the who point it's I was made getting for. It's it was, so weird. It's made for parents of kids that age. I guess, but or yeah, I don't know I don't exactly. Know. Or people I, who who have once had kids that age, I, or or just people in England because it was popular there. But like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not keying into whatever Alan Parker was getting at. I think no. it's just an odd experiment. And for yeah, it's odd. Uh, mm. Touche, <laughs> but it's not mm. much of a film. Yeah. Alan Parker has, has had a very strange career as yeah. well because he did Bugsy Malone, but then he went, went off and did fame which was a phenomenon at the time. They remade it. I don't think fame really had the same kind of cultural traction as a remake would have you believe it had. But uh, mm-hmm. I remember when it was fame, huge for a while, it was huge for a while. I, you know, I remember yeah. it when I was a kid and you know, it came out when I was two. Yeah. Uh, he made the wall, which is one of the best rock opera movies ever made. One mm-hmm. of the just film musicals, uh, made, this big ambitious multimedia thing with animation. It's go, please watch Pink mm-hmm. Floyd, the wall. It's really terrific. Um, yeah. But he also made uh, angel heart, which is this mm-hmm. very uh, creepy, horror film noir starring Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke. Um, he made The Commitments, which is actually a really strong music film mm, in and of itself. Which, which I haven't seen. You've never seen The Commitments? No. Oh, great soundtrack. It's up my alley, too. Amazing yeah. soundtrack. 
Um, he did Evita, which is a mixed bag as well, but people mm. really like a lot of stuff yeah, in it's it. Andrew Lloyd Webber. He hasn't made a movie since The Life of David Gale, which was completely lambasted, but and I never saw it because the it twist was, was ruined. It was, it was, it bombed, and yeah, it was one of the few t- cases where uh, Roger Ebert felt compelled to reveal the twist in public. Yeah. Because uh, he's, he felt he's it always, the film. He's always very ginger about revealing twists. He did say, he, I think he gave it zero stars. He gave it a very yeah. bad review. Left very angry and, uh, by it. I, yeah, I remember what Roger Ebert's reaction to the life of David Gale and how he said it, it kind of like sold itself out at the end and it had this really bad moral at the end. And eventually people just said, you got to tell us. You got to tell us what this twist is that outraged you so much. He said, okay, ordinarily I would never do this. But here's the twist of the life of David Gale. And he just spilled the beans. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've had the twist ruined and I feel no actual need to go see it now. I have this weird thing where, and, and I, I realize the reason why is extremely obvious, but I always confuse Alan Parker with Alan Rudolph. <laughs> very different filmmakers. Very, very different yeah. filmmakers. Alan Rudolph did uh, one of my favorite biopics, Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, very, very different. So for a second, I was like, but Alan Parker did Mrs. Parker, a movie I like. No, that was Adam Rudolph. But he did Pink for the Wall, which I love. There so, you go. I've yeah. never seen The Wall. You should see The Wall. I'm told I'll I watch The Commitments and you should watch The Wall. All right, we can yeah. do that sometime. I, I saw The Wall when I was like 19 years old and I saw it at a midnight show with a oh, bunch of stoners. It, blew it did. It blew my mind, man. <laughs> I was like having these really deep discussions that I'm barely following. When Hegel said, that. oh, shut up. <laughs> man, we're so 19 right now. It was really great. It was a great experience. All right, so that's Bugsy Malone. Next week on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to be reviewing some new releases. Uh, There is a new Charlize Theron action thriller Mm. on Netflix called The Old Guard, which sounds like Wanted meets Highlander, and I'm in. And there's That's a, cool. There's also a movie coming up where Gemma Arterton and Gugu Mbatha-Ra play girlfriends in, uh, like, Edwardian England, so I'm so there. Cool. Yeah. All right. And also next week uh, on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, because our patrons demanded it over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. There's a poll every single week. We're going to be reviewing a horror movie on Shudder. It's one of the Stuart Gordon films I actually haven't seen. (laughs) It's Castle Freak. I have not seen Castle Freak either. I've never had a chance to see Castle Freak. And now I have no choice but to see Castle Freak. And I'm very excited. Stuart Gordon sadly passed away earlier this year. Whitney and I are huge fans of his overall filmography. So this is going to be a real treat for us, good or bad. Because he didn't only make good movies. He made some crap. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, if you want to watch it, you can watch that on Shudder. Uh, yeah, over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we have a ton of exclusive content. We have exclusive shows about Firefly. We have exclusive shows about Star Trek, Disney+, Plus, the Oscars, which we need to do another episode of that soon. Yes. Um, and, uh, and other things as well. Polls every single week. There are monthly polls, weekly polls that help you determine future content on this and other podcasts here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. In addition to Critically Acclaimed, in addition to We've Got Mail, where we read your letters, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we also have uh, Cancel Too Soon, where we review TV shows that lasted one season or less. Episode Zero, where we talk about all the many films that inspired Star Wars. And we have a new show. Mm-hmm that I do want to give a uh, make a point to, to shout out uh, that's probably going to be pretty infrequent like once a month but it's called My Dinner with My Dinner with Andre 
And you may recall that a few weeks ago here at Critically Acclaimed, we reviewed the Louis Malle film My Dinner with Andre, and we had what I thought was a really interesting conversation about the various uh, ideas and themes of the film. Mm. So we had the idea of inviting various people that we know and respect to watch the film and make their own podcast about it, and we can keep them all in one place, and we can get a whole ton of different perspectives on the exact same film. So our first episode uh, stars the great Grey Drake, uh, who you might know as Ms. Movie Phone. She's been doing podcasts and videos and mm -hmm. interviews in the industry for many, many years, and I have a lot of respect for her. And also Steve Gelder, who is himself an accomplished podcaster, actor, worked, uh, worn a lot of different hats in the industry, and then a really fun conversation about it, too. And I just hope you don't miss that episode, because it was I thought it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. So we're, we're going to ask everybody we know. Eventually, I hope, we'll hope get we got some, some interesting people. That's right. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?